As was mentioned earlier, we are focusing on the gospel, spending 50 days uh, delighting in Jesus together. And I thought it would be worth just stopping here before we really even start to um, suggest why it is that it's important for us to stop and talk about and think about and meditate on this gospel. Well, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God is accomplishing in my life and in the world, in your life and in the world, uh, what he wants to do because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The centerpiece of all that God's doing in the world is the work of Christ on the cross and through the empty grave. But more than that, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It says that the gospel is the power of God, which means that the gospel itself, when we talk about the gospel, that activity, that news about what Jesus has done, so it's news that's already been completed, the news about what Jesus has done has in itself power. It is by itself active in accomplishing something. It is the power of God unto salvation, which is far different than any power I might supply by which I would live a successful life, by which I would uh, be a Christian. It is the, it is the power of God that is active through the gospel. The gospel, you might say, is a spiritual engine for what God is doing in the world and in our lives. Or if you looked at it a little bit different way and you say, these are the things I know I need. I know that I need peace with God. I know that I need to be forgiven. I know that I need rest for my soul. I know, fill in the blank the large existential needs that you have, the gospel is the means by which those things happen for you. Which means your own personal activity, work, um, investment is not the way that it happened. The gospel is the power of God. And the centerpiece of that gospel is the person of Jesus. So it makes sense to delight in Jesus together if you're going to be talking about anything that is related to the good news. And so we've got a text this morning that helps us to do uh, just that, to delight in Jesus as we think about the gospel. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 15, and uh, this, is, this is absolutely a beautiful text about Jesus. And it tells us in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, 
All, th all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might have, He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. And so here, Paul highlights for us Jesus and the work of Jesus, and then he calls it the gospel. That's what it, and we'll start there in verse 23. And so at the end, it tells us kind of what is your part. What do you contribute? What is your reaction to this gospel? But after having talked about Jesus, he calls it gospel. And it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So whatever he just talked about, Okay, the, the work of Jesus, his body of death on the cross, his reconciling work, the fact that Jesus died and then rose again, he's a firstborn from the dead, all of that is good news. And so what, is, what do you do with that good news? What you do with that good news, very simply, you believe it. If indeed you continue in the faith. If you continue to have a faithful response to the news that you've heard, one that commits yourself to the news. In other words, you forsake things that aren't the news. You forsake the self-effort. You forsake your own attempts at establishing whatever holiness, whatever uh, rightness it is before God. You just say, that is out of the, I can't do that. I'm finished. And you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting. So it's interesting that he talks about this abiding, not shifting, not changing hope of the gospel. In other words, your role, what needs to happen for you is that today, right now, you must hope in the gospel. Right now, you must believe it. Now, that may seem obvious. You continue in faith. I mean, you just might, it just looks like it's black and white right there. But, see, if you, if, if you kind of cut your teeth on the, uh, on the gospel, you might say, like I did, mine was, you need to believe it, get that done, and then get on being a Christian. You need to check the box you need to walk the aisle, raise your hand, whatever other things. Get it done and then get on with it. This says you don't get on, you get it done and get on with it. You do it every single day. You believe in Jesus every 
day, you continue. Now, that shouldn't be unusual. Even the, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says the same thing. And really, it's John 3.16 that was sort of, uh, you know, told to me, you need to believe and get that done. But if you listen to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says whoever believes in him, the, the same response of faith or belief. But you'll notice even in John 3.16, even in the thing that was told to me to kind of get it done, is not a get it done. It's whoever believes. It's not whoever had believed. Not whoever did it in vacation Bible school, whoever did it in church, you must believe. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, as long as you are here, you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So what he's calling you toward as we begin to talk about Jesus is an ongoing faith where you wake up every morning and say, I need the work of Jesus today. Where you lay your head on the pillow at night and I need the work of Jesus as I sleep. Every conversation, every stressful moment, I need the work of Jesus. You continue in the faith. And this gospel, it centers on Jesus so we are delighting in Jesus together. Now, let me... Uh, let me just make sure that you see that this is all about Jesus. That's what this is. That's what Colossians 1 is. In verses 15 through 22, um, a lot of scholars think that this is an ancient uh, hymn of the Christian church. In the, I, I want to spend most of our time in the second stanza, but the first stanza starts in verse 15. And the first stanza of this hymn says that Jesus is supreme in creation. If you're going to put a title over the first stanza, it would be that Jesus is supreme in creation. He is, Jesus is, the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. In other words, what you see when you see Jesus is God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, we're told throughout the, the scripture that, that Jesus is the way that we know God. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Remember that. We're going to see that again in Colossians. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is, even here in Hebrews, supreme over creation because he upholds it by the word of his power. He created the world, but specifically here, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint 
of his nature. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. You want to see what is God like? You need to understand Jesus. You need to delight yourself in Jesus. Or in John's introduction to his gospel, when he's introducing us to Jesus, he says, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus has come into this world and made the Father known. He is the image of the invisible God. Which is one of the reasons that I think the Ten Commandments prohibit other images because Jesus is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this firstborn establishes his place as first in all creation. He has the, the, the rights and he is the heir of all things, what it says in Hebrews, that Jesus himself is the one who has all authority in creation. He is firstborn. For by him all things were created. We saw that also in Hebrews, that Jesus is the agent of creation. The way that things got made in this world was that Jesus made them. Notice things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So by him all things were created. They were created through him and they were created for him. He is the centerpiece of everything that has been created. Everything that has been created exists for the glory of Jesus. And then notice what it is here that is created. Everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. He has in mind not merely the, the flowers on the trees or the, uh, the bugs that are now out with the warm weather, but he has in mind the invisible spiritual element of the world as well. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Even the enemies of God were created by Jesus and will be subject to him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is pre-existent. And one of the things that I want you to notice, I mean, the reason we're just even highlighting the first stanza and, and then spend a little more time in the second is so that you see the uniqueness of Jesus is essential for your salvation. If Jesus were other than he really is, you couldn't be saved. If Jesus didn't have a physical body, there'd be no reconciliation with God. If he was not before all things, eternally existent, God himself, he wouldn't be able to save you. And so the unique character of Jesus is what enables him to be the Savior. So he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus is supreme over creation. The second stanza that begins in verse 18 says that Jesus is supreme over the new creation. He is supreme over the creation, but he is supreme over the new creation. In other words, it isn't just that 
Jesus made the world that you see and enjoy on such a beautiful weekend. But rather, Jesus is making all things new. And making all things new, remedying all of the brokenness that happened from sin and the fall, He is making all things new. He is supreme over the new creation. Look at verse 18. This is what tells me that it's no longer just a physical creation. He is the head of the body, the church. So now he's talking about doing something new, creating something other than just the physical world. He is creating now a church. He is beginning to form for himself a people that will belong to him. And he is the beginning. He is the one who has uh, initiated this, who is the activating principle in this new creation. It's not just that he's like the beginning, the, the capital letter at the beginning of a sentence. He is the one that animates the whole sentence, the one that gives it all of its life. Jesus is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And so there's another clue. Rather than being firstborn of all creation, like we saw in verse 16, it's not merely about that. It's now he's firstborn from the dead. He is raised from the dead. And the resurrection is what gives him the right to be the head of all things to the church. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. And so you see that in creation, he has first place. In the new creation, likewise, he is preeminent. He has first place in all things. So that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. So it is not wrong for us to make a big deal of Jesus, to sing about Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to delight in Jesus together, because God's aim is that Jesus have preeminence in everything. Then again, in the second stanza, it reiterates a little bit of what we saw in the first. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to have, to have Jesus be God himself. So that you have this unique God-man around whom the activity of God in the world centers. That's the gospel. That the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. But more than that, notice, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, it's one thing for us to say we're going to delight in Jesus together. But God is delighting in Jesus. God is pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. It makes God happy to have accomplished what he did in the person of Jesus. But that's not all of the pleasure of God. Note verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And here we have 
what appears to be somewhat of an um, impersonal reconciliation. You might, you might think of it a little bit uh, as, a, I don't know, a bank statement or something. When you reconcile the, the numbers, you get the, the, the pluses and the minuses, the ins and the outs all lined up as they should be. And what he's saying here is God is going to line up the world as it should be through the person of Jesus. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. And so you have him reconciling all things to himself. Everything is put in its place by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. And then he moves in verse 21 to it being a personal reconciliation, the kind of reconciliation that you might have with somebody that you offend. If you have a fight with somebody, you need to be reconciled. You know that in, in some respect, it's like the numbers, things don't add up in your relationship. They don't match. Your account and their account don't match anymore. And what he's saying is that your account and God's account don't match. You need to be reconciled to God. And you need to be reconciled to God because you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He makes it clear that the way that we think and the way that we move through the world, our view of the world, our attitudes, all of them are alienated and hostile to God. And then those attitudes and thoughts work their way out into the way that we live. And we are doing evil deeds. He says, that's what God has against you. That's why you must be reconciled, because you have done things that would make God reject you. You have done things that give God the right to say, you are not welcome in my presence. God's account of it and your account of it don't add up. And so we need to be reconciled. Now, just even as I say that, I want you to think about what it's going to take to be reconciled to God. You've, you've probably heard people, and it's been a while since many of us have been in person anyway to a memorial service or funeral, but sometimes you will hear uh, people say uh, that the deceased, uh, he made his peace with God. He made his peace with God. Well, what exactly would that mean? He made his peace with God. Well, I think if it were about me, it would mean that I took initiative, that I established the terms that by which God and I are going to get along. I made peace with him. And I'll just tell you, I mean, if I'm going to make peace with God, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty squishy. I'm, I'm probably going to say, how about if we don't talk about these few things? How about if you, God, let that go? Then we'll have some peace. And all I'm going to do is just sort of uh, hope for the best. That's not how you make peace with God. And that's not what the text says either. The text says that it's God who makes peace with you. That God is the one who makes peace. God is the one who took the initiative make peace. Now, how did he do that? 
making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. Let that sink in for a moment. You were alienated, hostile toward God, doing things God disapproved of and by his own nature would need to reject. But God took initiative to reconcile you to himself, to make your account and his account line up so that you can be at peace with him. This is staggering, really staggering, and I don't think it staggers us quite enough, actually. I mean, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. I want you to notice that there are a couple things that are happening here. There is the reconciliation on the one hand, and the saving on the other. There is this fact that God no longer has anything against you, but more than that, he is saving you and bringing you to himself. You could think of it as though one of these things was eternal, but the other thing is um, temporal. It's concurrent. It happens now. So that you are immediately reconciled to God. I, I think about this a couple different ways. You are immediately reconciled to God. Think about that. I mean, I have this vision of what I thought I was doing when I was a kid, trusting Jesus that was someday when in the future I will die, I'll really need that. And I will, and I'm really thankful for it. But now, I am reconciled to God. We just, um, we just sang a song. I don't know if you sang the same song as me. But it said, I will arise and go to Jesus. And he will look at me and think about what he should do with me. I will arise and go to Jesus, and he'll, he'll deliberate for a minute about whether he and I are going to be friends. <laughs> that isn't the song that I sang. I will arise and go to Jesus, and he will embrace me. He will welcome me like the father welcomed the prodigal son. He will throw his arms around me. He is waiting for me to come to him, not just when I die, but today, this afternoon, tomorrow, because I am reconciled to God. All of that alienation and hostility and evil deeds, those have been taken away 
by the blood of the cross of Jesus. They've been placed on his body of flesh in his death. And so I can arise and go to Jesus and he'll embrace me in his arms and there will be life forevermore. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before That was a problem with my evil deeds and my bad attitude uh, is that I wasn't wholly blameless and above reproach before him. But he has placed those offenses on the body of Jesus that hung on the cross. And instead, he makes me holy, blameless, and above reproach. And holiness is not some kind of stuffy religious thing that you may think. Holiness is exactly what God himself is so that I can be in complete and unbroken fellowship with God. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. This happens individually. This also happens with the whole church. Tells us in Ephesians 5 that uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for so that he might present her without spot or blemish to himself. He presents her to himself without spot or blemish. And again, I want you to think about what Jesus thinks of you because if you're like me, that's a lot of the struggle that you have in your spiritual life is what does Jesus really think of me? Does he think that I'm just some sort of knucklehead that bumbles through life and makes a lot of mistakes? that he's going to have to really fix one day before everything uh, gets squared away and he, he better work on me hard before I get to heaven? Or is he ready to present me holy, blameless, and above reproach before him? So that he looks not just at me, but at all of us, even together, as his church, his bride, all of our problems. I mean, this isn't just my problem. We all have problems, and we all have all those problems all together. And what does Jesus think of us? Is he up there shaking his head saying, oh, those guys, what are they doing? He is, he is going to present us to himself. And he is going to look at us and say, you are perfect. You Beautiful. You are exactly what I love. I, can, I can't imagine anybody saying that to me. This, this, this is just more than I can handle. That Jesus would in his body on that cross take everything away from me that would keep God from saying, you're mine. I love you. You're perfect. That is the news that we call the good news. The gospel. That God is doing that 
for us in the person of Jesus. And he's doing that. He's reconciling us to himself. He's reconciling all of creation to himself so that all of the groaning and all of the brokenness and all of the creation all around us is one day going to be made new. And we are going to find ourselves one day face to face in a new creation where everything is good and right and God is so pleased. And so what are you supposed to do with that? Well, back in verse 23, you're to say, you know what? I believe that. I need that. I am hanging on with white knuckles to the hope of the gospel that God is doing that because there is no other way that, God's gonna, that I'm going to be blameless before God. There is no other way. There is no other way that I'm going to be embraced by Jesus and told that I am loved and perfect unless God himself does it. And so you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Will you hang on to it? Will you commit yourself to it again today and again tomorrow and every day continuing to believe that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to have complete, not partial, but complete peace with God? Not so that there will be some kind of uh, courtroom scene where your goodness and your badness is somehow weighed against each other and adjudicated in heaven and God makes some kind of decision. God's already made his decision. He put Jesus on the cross so that you might know that you are loved by him. God's not hesitating on this. He loves you and accepts you and considers you reconciled to him if you continue in the faith if you believe this hope of the gospel I'm telling you. And you do that because your eyes are fixed on Jesus. I hope, I hope you're reading that green book that we've uh, been giving away. Uh, into the first chapter, Ray Ortland quotes Jonathan Edwards, and I'm just going to close with this. He said, what is there? What is there that you could desire in a Savior that is not in Christ? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that's adorable or endearing or that you could think of that would be encouraging, which is not to be found in the person of Christ? I hope and pray you can delight in him, that you will receive joy, and God will receive glory because of the work that Jesus has done for you and me on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, great God and Father, that you would make peace with us, that you would be the one that would sacrifice so that we might be reconciled 
That is astounding to us. Would you capture our hearts again with it? Would you never let us get over the love that you have for us, that you showed to us in Jesus? And Father, may our hearts be happy every single day that we are yours, reconciled to you, having peace with you. And Father, may you keep us in this faith, I pray, clinging to the hope of the gospel. And I ask it because Jesus has done such wonderful things for us. Amen.